Shut up and sit down. Total brag. I just played a hundred and fifteen word point word on Words with Friends and also had to endure a two second phone call where one of my cousins called me called me to tell me that I was a whore and then she hung up on me. Because that was her game I played that hundred and fifteen point word on. <laughs> I I played it in like fifteen seconds later my phone rang and I was like, Hello and she said, You whore and then she hung up. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> it's my cousin. You're, everybody who plays Roger is friends with me. You're safe. I I did it to my cousin. Um, but it's the second time I've played that particular word in the past couple of weeks, which is really interesting. Um, bedlams, B-E-D-L-A-M-S. And I got it on a triple word score. And I think on hers, it was a triple word. I made three words out of it. But that's the second time I've played that word in two weeks. Um, I got it from Chris, who's a beast. Uh, not the Chris in the chat room, but an, but another Chris who plays um, uh, Words with Friends with me, um, who who is a beast. Uh, she, damn, she make you mad because I rarely ever don't get my ass kicked when it comes to Words with Friends when I play Chris. Chris B is a beast. What the B stands for, beast. Anyways, <coughs> tonight's topic is foreshadowing in fiction. And um, I was when I was getting ready, um, when I was fixing my tea to come up here and, and do the podcast, and I thought to myself, wow, am I an asshole for doing two-hour podcasts on a work night at 10 o'clock Central? She is totally a beast. Um, Julie says she's beating her by 150 points. That girl once beat me by 526 points. I'm not ever going to forget it. I, I don't even... What? Yeah, she, she's a beast. Chris B., if you're listening, you're a beast, girl. I love you. It's, it's actually really challenging to play games with her, and I, I really enjoy them. Um, because she makes me think, and she keeps me on my toes, and I really, I really like that. It's a lot of fun. Um, she we're we're Facebook friends, so I assume she's a minion. Um, but she may or may not be listening to the podcast. Anyways, um, <clears throat> so tonight's topic, you know, really, am I being an asshole for doing two hour podcasts on a work night for you guys? Because, um, for me it's ten o'clock, um, and the show will end at midnight, and I don't, you know, most like I'll, I'll have a lot of listeners who are, um on the west coast so it's not a problem for them but i'm like i'm kind of a dick (laughs) i'm kind of being a dick right now (laughs) i mean there's always the archive but a lot of people are really um really enthused about being in the actual chat room during the um (laughs) barb's like okay okay barb it's answered (laughs) 
She says, nope, I'm retired. <laughs> let me tell you a joke about, let me tell you, not a joke, but my mom. Let me tell you about my mother. Um, we're sitting in the cafe. And she's she um ne- never bothered to learn to type when she, when she was young and she's um being kind of fussy about making a post on Facebook and I said I could teach you to type mother I mean I can get you a program that would teach you how to type there's sites online that and she looked at me this woman looked at me like I had suggested that she go out and kill some puppies she was like she was like she looked at me like this look on her face and then she said I'm retired (laughs) there you go Barb so next time someone tells you you should do something take that tone with them I'm retired like, like she, I, she acted like I just asked her to do the most foulest thing possible by learning to type. She ain't having it. She is currently, though, having an Elvis marathon. She's bought six Elvis movies on my Voodoo account. <laughs> she don't need help cussing somebody out. And if she did it any faster, she wouldn't. Uh, she'd still have Facebook friends because you know my mom's like a. She's in like Farmville Mafia or something, um, or Farm Town, whatever it is. Uh, she's 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 ridiculous. There are thirty-one Elvis movies. I looked it up. I googled official movies. I think it's thirty-one, not counting his concert films. And she's been watching his concert films on um, YouTube. She's bought six movies so far. Um, she did end up buying Jailhouse Rock, which is one of my favorites, and GI Blues and Girl Happy and Girls, Girls, Girls. Um, she hasn't bought the Hawaii one yet, which I think is bullshit. But you know, it's her movie, so I can't actually go, you know, request that she buy some Elvis movie that she's not interested in seeing because it's her shit, right? You know. Um, anyways. <clears throat> It's ridiculous. So tonight we're going to talk about uh, foreshadowing. And, you know, um, realistically speaking, I'm not even trying to be rude. uh, Foreshadowing is a tool that you have to plan for. So so you have to, to do, to create circumstances of genuine foreshadowing, you either have to put it in, in your second draft after you've pantsed your first draft, you need to plot it out. Because foreshadowing is a long game. Um, and foreshadowing is, is when you when you give a reader clues about an upcoming event. Now, there are a couple of um, kinds of foreshadowing uh, that take place in, in fiction. Um, and it's in really, you know, in, in fandom, the... The header on a fic kind of takes away some of your foreshadowing, um, and oftentimes, in, like you know, with a with a novel, um, you're giving an idea of of who the protagonist is, and if there's going to be a love interest, you you know his or her name, um, and you know who, and you, sometimes you do know who the bad guy is, and sometimes you don't. 
But in fiction, foreshadowing is a way of letting your reader, giving your reader a heads up about what's coming regarding um, romantic pairings, um, regarding character death. Uh, for instance, in the play Romeo and Juliet, uh, scene, um, Shakespeare foreshadows their death, or at least the death of Romeo, when he said he would ha- rather have her love and die young than to never have had her love at all and die old. It, there's, I don't know the actual quote. But anyway, he foreshadows the death of Romeo at the balcony scene in, in Romeo and Juliet. <clears throat> but <clears throat> one thing that I see um, writers sometimes doing is um, confusing a metaphor with foreshadowing. Um, an example of a metaphor would be, oh gosh, that turtle crossing the road in Grapes of Wrath would be a metaphor. Um, that turtle's journey across the road um, is slow and dangerous and ill-advised, and it represents the family's journey across America, which is also slow, dangerous, and ill-advised. <laughs> But he has no choice but to cross the road. The, the turtle has no choice. He has to survive. And so the family in Grapes of Wrath has no choice either. And that's a metaphor. Um, another classic example of foreshadowing is when in, um, I remember this from school, because when I was taught about foreshadowing in high school, one of the things that I... Um, one of the examples was of mice and men, and we read of mice and men, and um, what are their names? I forgot their names. Uh, the main characters. When when the one character kills the dog, it's a mercy killing. In the first part of of mice and men, it is a foreshadowing of the mercy killing that takes place at the end of the story. Um, and that kind of foreshadowing is complicated, and it has to be wove. It, Lenny and George, right, thank you. When Lenny kills the dog in the first part of... Um, Lenny's the... George is the one that's... Which, which one's which? George is... George is Lenny is the one who's um, slow, right? Okay, Lenny is the slow one. Um, George kills a dog near the first part of the story, um, and that is a metaphor. Not a metaphor. That is a foreshadowing of the events where, in order to protect Lenny from what is coming um, because of what he's done uh, and how misunderstood he is, um, George kills Lenny, and he kills Lenny the same way he killed the dog. It was a mercy killing, because Lenny would have suffered greatly if anybody else had found him. And it's, it's a really profound scene in, in the story, because Lenny's talking about um, his rabbits and the future, and he never sees it coming, um, and neither did the dog. And that's the point. And that's foreshadowing. And um, it that really that 
example of foreshadowing has kind of stuck with me my whole life, um, having learned it um, when I was very young. And whenever I have been in writing groups and we have discussed foreshadowing, of mice and men comes up because we all learned it in in school, in writing classes, and in literature classes. That that's the, that's the like the epitome example of um, foreshadowing in the in, in the classics. It it's just yeah. It's right there. Obvious example. It's a really smack you in the face example of foreshadowing. When in Old Yeller, when the original owner of Yeller um, comes around, he warns Travis about rabies. At that moment, that's telling the audience to prepare for Old Yeller to get rabies and die. That isn't a foreshadowing for the character. Uh, That isn't something that the character picks up on, of course, that it goes right over his head. It's supposed to. That's the way it was written. Um, But for the audience, the audience, the the author is giving the audience a head up, a heads up. Hey, we're going to have this problem. It's going to be a problem. And then they kind of give you a red herring when Old Yeller is attacked. And you're thinking, oh, okay, okay, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. And then, and, then, and then the fire. And he gets attacked again. And you're like, oh, God, this sucks so much. But there's also other foreshadowing in the book where Travis, when they talk about Travis being the man of the family and taking care of his family and doing what's right, even when it's painful. Um, so all along this, um, this journey of, in Old Yeller, um, tra- um, Travis's journey to manhood and for being responsible and for taking care of those around him extends to Yeller. He has to, um, in a way, provide Yeller mercy because of what he's been exposed to. There's no coming back from rabies. Um, and he has to um, basically be a man about it. it it's really, you know, in, from an audience perspective, it's it's really terrible. Um, <laughs> but if you pay attention to the craft that's put into stories like that, um, you see it coming. Um, and still Magnolias, it is... Um, foreshadowed uh, now all along we know Shelby's sick she has diabetes and she has to get a transplant and she cuts her hair and she has a dialysis and her mom gives her a kidney the foreshadowing moment in Still Magnolias is the birthday party You st- the camera, you see everybody's face but Shelby's. Now, Jack is sitting on Shelby's lap, and the rest of the family is singing to him. This is foreshadowing. This is the, this is the director and the, or the writer and the cameraman all telling you that in the future, Shelby's face won't be there. No, 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 no. I've I've always thought it was foreshadowing for her death. 
so um, Julie said in the chat room that she thought it was because um, Julia Roberts wasn't available for filming. Um, yeah, I mean, then there, there, there's a scene where it talks about how sick she is and why Shelby shouldn't have a baby because her kidneys can't handle it. That's the first thing we learn about Shelby. And then Shelby gets pregnant. And Malin is like, I can't. What? No, this is this is this is not what we agreed. <laughs> like she had, you know, because she was so deeply involved in Shelby's life. But for me, that moment in the, at the birthday party was always striking. Um, for me, as a moment of foreshadowing to say, okay, um, Shelby's not gonna make it. The first time I watched Still Magnolias, I was very young, and when I saw that scene, and we never see her face during the birthday song, I thought Shelby was already dead. Until it cuts and they're in the beauty parlor and she has to get her hair cut um, and she well she wants to get her hair cut and the, and they find the dialysis bruises um, but the, the birthday scene I thought Shelby was already dead and it could be for me because I had just really learned about um, foreshadowing in, 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 in class that year. It, it really stuck out to me as that as a as the director telling you she ain't gonna make it. So I wasn't surprised when um, Shelby died. A striking um, one of the more interesting elements of Star Wars uh, is the severed hand. Um, Anakin's. And Luke's. All through, I'm serious, all through um, The Force Awakens, I kept telling Ray, don't get your hand cut off. Don't get your hand cut off. <laughs> I, just, I knew it was coming. <laughs> I would not be surprised at all to find out that Kylo Ren <laughs> is missing a hand. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Cause, and I think that's not foreshadowing. It's a metaphor. Um, it's a metaphor about um, loss and loss of control, um, about sacrificing um, yourself for the Force. Uh, it uh, it's a metaphor. Not not a piece of foreshadowing. I think it's pretty much an overdone, um, um, overdone metaphor, and I really hope Ray gets to keep both her hands. <laughs> but let's see. Um, the more interesting side um, of a foreshadowing is. Um, Okay, you you, uh, you looked it up? Julie looked it up, and the still Magnolia scene, the child's actor's mother had to hold him to keep him calm during the scene. Um, and that's why you don't see um, Julia Roberts' face. But, you know, considering the movie Magic, they could have put Julia Roberts in it anyway. That scene didn't have to be shot with her just not there at all. She could have been, and the, the kid could have been theoretically sitting in um, that terrible lady's lap that made the um, armadillo cake. 
Fern. He could have been sitting in Aunt Fern's lap. He liked Aunt Fern. I'm just saying that for me that it was um, a telling that Shelby wasn't going to be there. Because I really honestly thought she was dead already when that scene began because we never see her. And that might have been an editorial decision later because of the kids' behavior and the mom having to be in it. Um, it's, you know. But Aunt, you know, Aunt, Aunt Fern could have definitely been in charge of that kid during that birthday party. Anyways, um, the red herring. The red herring is um, you. It usually happens in mysteries and suspense novels, where you're led to believe that something or someone else is the problem. Um, and a red herring is a type of foreshadowing, and it is actually like. I refer to it. Basically, Snape is the red herring in the chamber in the chamber of in in the Philosopher's Stone. The kids think that Snape is the problem. They think Snape is the problem all like the whole time. Harry definitely does thinks that Snape is the problem. Hermione thinks Snape is the problem so much so that she sets him on fire. Now a red herring can be can be done really well, and I think honestly that um, Snape is a red herring in um, in the Philosopher's Stone was really well done. It was really really well done, um, because when I was reading the book, yeah, but that part wasn't well done. <laughs> Just saying, just saying. Um, when I was reading the book, I was like um, on the fence about whether or not, you know, what, what was going on with with um, with Quarrel Mort, and um, I didn't know he was Quarrel Mort, of course, just Quarrel, Quarrel, whatever his name was. Poor dude. Um, the second person who tried to kill Harry Potter, <laughs> or maybe the third, depending on your um, um, point of view when they were in. Um, the Forbidden Forest, but uh, I kind of waffled back and forth about which one of them was actually the red herring and which one of them was the bad guy um, all the way to the end. It was really interesting because um, it was very well done, uh, but as a rule, I don't really enjoy a red herring. It, it's, it's not um, something that I, I really appreciate. I like Cozy Mysteries um, and um, I think one of the more interesting red herrings that you see in 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 fiction would be the character of Sethos in the Mia Peabody series because he is the bad guy, but he's also the good guy, and but isn't he the bad guy for? For an actual reason, he um, and but then he's he's a patriot, um, and it's he's he's just a really interesting character, really interesting character. Um, probably one of my favorite characters in the Amiga Peabody series, which I highly recommend. Um, she's an unreliable not, um, narrator, but she's a charming one. 
I mean, because a lot of times an un- unreliable narrator comes off as arrogant and um, it can be a deeply ugly reading experience and you start to hate the narrator. But um, Amelia Peabody is just, um, she's lying to herself too. It's, it's really obvious. You know, like when she says she hasn't aged a day in 25 years. Her son's a grown ass man, and she had her son in her th- in her thirties. And there's her kid running off getting married, but Amelia hadn't aged a fucking day, <laughs> as far as she's concerned. <laughs> and even if she has to dye her hair a little bit, that's her business. <laughs> her hair is still black because <laughs> she dyes it just a little bit. <laughs> It's great. It's great. But like I said, a lot of times the unreliable narrator can be really, really super annoying. But um, Amelia Peabody is just honestly, she's just charming. Um, and like when she pretends to figure out the mystery before anybody else did, oh, I knew that. I knew that, of course. <laughs> well, you know as the reader that she didn't fucking know that because if she'd known that, she'd already told you. It's great because Amelia Peabody is primarily written in first person. Um, there are th- um, third person um, letters in it that she picks up from other people and journal entries and stuff. And I think that um, her son's journal is written in first person. I haven't read that series in a long time. I should I should, I should get it out and read it. Um, but oh, the dear readers! And sometimes she will talk directly to you, which which is second person. Um, and it's often second person mixed into first person is super fucking annoying. Um, don't break the wall. Don't, don't even look at the wall. Don't look at the wall. But Elizabeth Peters breaks that wall wide open. <laughs> and it's charming. It, it really is. It, it really is a excellent series to read. The Amelia Peabody series by Elizabeth Peters. Um, I fell in love. I, I my first book was um, um, the ape that guards the balance, and um, she um, it's just just really fantastic, awesome reading. Um, but back to foreshadowing, and uh, let's see. Um, I you know honestly like just some small examples of foreshadowing earlier, like I was saying, you know who the bad guy is. Um, who the romantic pairing is going to be. But in fan fiction, a lot of that is, is taken out the window because of tags and because of warnings. Um, and so you already know who the pairing is going to be. And, and if there's going to be, you know, character bashing, you already know who the bad guy is going to be. <laughs> we already know this. <laughs> and um, Crocodile in the Sandbook is the first um, is the first book. Crocodile on the Sandbank is the first book for Amelia Peabody. Uh, but I read um, The Ape That Guards the Balance first and um, fell in love. And then I had to roll back, I don't know, nine, ten books <laughs> to get there. So, anyways. <clears throat> um, if you look, if you Google online and Google for the Amelia Peabody series order... I'm sure there's a website out there that that will give you a list of the books in the order they should be read. 
I have encountered stories on AO3 where the author didn't even bother with a summary. They just put tags. You can't see my face, but it's an, but it's an unhappy one. It's really an unhappy face. 200 tags. No one needs fucking 200 tags. That's ridiculous. They're not going to be read, number one, which means if you have a really important tag that you've used instead of a warning, I want to punch people. Anyways, that wasn't foreshadowing. That was a direct um, indication of action. I want to punch somebody. Anyways, um, in my work, uh, I foreshadow uh, here and there. Um, In the Sentinels of Atlantis, I foreshadowed the arrival of the Queen with Peter and, again, with Miko um, in the episode of the Queen. Um, But uh, in that darkness that some of the guys were feeling um, throughout the beginning of the series, because the queen was already, the queen was on the planet and she was already there. And um, I wanted to, um, and I figured that anybody who'd actually watched the show would know what Peter's shadow was, that the shadow he was dealing with in his mind, that you would know what it was because the queen does make an appearance. In, in, in canon, um, she's actually on the on the um, on the uh, actual show. Um, her crash landing into the ocean is um, a canon event that took place, and she um, ends up connecting with Taylor in canon because of Taylor's race genetics. And uh, so it was. Yeah, you know, I, I, I wanted to get her out of the way. And I out of out of the way during the first season, and I wasn't quite sure how I wanted to do it um, when I wrote the first episode, and then I um, the gathering. But I had to um, before I hit Pegasus, I had to make those decisions. And when you're making decisions like that, you have to look at your your whole plot. I don't know what you guys are talking about in the chat room, but that was really distracting. <laughs> um. You have to look at your whole plot and and make decisions. Now, when it comes to a series like Sentinels of Atlantis, I I knew that um, any foreshadowing I did early on in the the early episodes might be overlooked or dismissed by the reader because they're not automatically, they're not immediately addressed. So going into writing The Queen, which I had to replot for for various reasons, because I forgot Miko had the gene, um... (laughs) Because originally that wasn't going to be Miko, um, who encount um, who was hiding um, their genetics, um, but I had to make a change. Um, well, it, it wasn't going to be Miko who encountered and who encountered and killed the queen. Um, it was going to be an, another character um, who was also coming online as a guide. Um, but when I realized that I had um, done that, whoops. I was like, well, shit, what am I going to do? And so I rewrote, I, re- I, re- I replotted the queen to put Miko in the place of what was originally going to be Ian Wilkes. Um, and so it was, 
it deepened the narrative in a way um, that I found really attractive when I put Miko in that spot and I and I wrote the Queen. Um, and I was like, wow, you know, and sometimes when you make a decision like outside of the writing um, and you follow through with it and everything's fine and and you don't even notice what you could be missing, but if you have to stop and replot and address something like the fact that I forgot that Miko Cassandra, whatever her last name was, um, didn't um, have, you know, that she has the ATA gene, and I had to address that. I had to go back, um, and I already knew that they were going to go to the underground platform and that they were going to encounter the queen, because I had already set that up previously with the queen being, um, um, being a problem for the guides on the city. And so slotting her into Ian's place in my overall plot uh, took a little work and I had to, I had to adjust um, all the episodes after that to um, account for, well, I hadn't written them yet, but I had to adjust their plots to account for what happened in the queen. Um, Cause it did take place in a, in a different way than what, um, what would have happened if it had been Ian Wilkes who came online um, with that queen, with, with, with that queen's arrival, but uh, oh, pardon me, oh, I'm beginning to think I'm not taking the wrong medication because I'm kind of sleepy. Anyways, um, I totally forgot what I was gonna say. <laughs> queen the queen the queen when you when you plot you have opportunities because you know what's coming um I mean, you know the events that are, are 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 ahead of your characters and so you can insert things into their thought process um into their dialogue to foreshadow events that are going to happen because you already know they're going to happen. When you're a pantser and you don't really know what's ahead of you, when, you, when you're not quite certain in which direction and what's going to happen in what order, um, foreshadowing can be difficult outside of, say, pairings and bad guy. Because um, I think that, you know, going into um, a fic, pantsers normally know what their pairing is going to be, right? Because I always do. But then I also do world building before. <laughs> <laughs> even when I pants. So that's, uh, you know, another thing as well. Um, but I was telling somebody um, before that for me, when I do plot, um, it's pretty extensive. And I do plot most of the time. So in a lot of ways, my plot is actually fairly close to a rough draft. Then I write like a second rough draft. I am <laughs> I am pretty sure I took the wrong medication. I'm sorry you guys. Um uh, I uh yeah, you no, know, it, it's my medication. It's just I think I took the sleepy version versus the non-sleepy version. <laughs> Cuz I am like it's like I was fine, I was fine, I was fine, and then suddenly I'm like, I can go to sleep right about now. <laughs> it's really weird. Anyways, 
Oh, sorry, I know y'all are contagious. I'm making all you guys yawn. Um, <clears throat> um, when you now, I'm not saying that as a pantser that you can't foreshadow. Um, but I think that um, if you want to explore that in your craft, that it would be something better done in the second draft. So that way you aren't stressed out about making it work right. Because after you've got your work spread out in front of you and and you've already completed your first draft, doing your second draft, um, um, you're going to see your problems. You're going to see your plot holes. You're going to see your characterization issues. You're going to see your goals, your motivations. You're going to see all this spread out in front of you. Um, Can go back and find a spot to foreshadow um, the events that are important to your plot for your for your reader or for your characters. Um, saying, for instance, you know, if you're writing a murder mystery, um, that um, d- depending on the kind of mystery, in a like, well, no, not really. In a mystery, the, the murderer is revealed last. In a suspense, often the reader knows who the bad guy is. Even if the um, even if the writer I mean, the the characters don't, your main character can be totally oblivious to the bad guy in a suspense, but your reader can know who they are. Um. So, and also when you're writing mysteries in your second draft, you can insert red herrings. I don't recommend that you do a lot of them, and also I don't recommend you do a lot of foreshadowing either, because um, foreshadowing should be delicate. And it shouldn't slap you in the face, and it should, uh, it should, your reader should just kind of glide over it, and then later, whenever your foreshadowing is revealed, like when your event is revealed that you foreshadowed, they can go, oh, oh, I see what you did, oh, but but it shouldn't make them stop. It shouldn't make them stop and ponder. Like, for instance, this week I put out the new part for Hold My Coffee, um, and uh, someone noticed my foreshadowing in an earlier episode where I talked about um, where John and Anne had a conversation, and Anne said she didn't know um, basically what McKay was capable of if John was severely injured or killed. She didn't know. She, um, she couldn't, she didn't know what to expect. And um, in the looking glass, Aunt Tel- um, Teldy found out what she could expect from McKay in that situation. That's a moment because I am writing in episodes and I am writing um, plotted episodes. <laughs> I did plot all of it all the way to episode 10, um, which is going to be my season finale. Um that's a moment that I had to prepare for. And I had to, when I wrote the, that episode, um, I actually had it in a big giant 24 point letters in my plot document to make sure that I included this conversation somewhere in this episode to, um, create that line of thought for the reader, because it wasn't just Anne's line of thought. I hope that it became your line of thought as you were reading. You're thinking, well, what would McKay do? Would she flip the fuck out? Um, what would she do? 
what would this version of McKay do in this situation? How would she respond? Um, and then you, know, you can kind of think about canon events. What would Meredith McKay do watching the Jedi feed John to a wraith? Now you have to ask yourself, what would she do? Because you already know what she has done. So you know what she's capable of. You know what, um, and I've I've kind of outlined um, throughout the series events that um, stand out. In, in McKay's character in her history, um, blowing up a solar system full of Jaffa. Uh, <laughs> she set Liz on fire. <laughs> yeah, she probably was set we were on fire. Um, with her eyes, it'd be like laser laser beam would shoot out of her eyeballs. But see, you know, building up throughout the series, I I introduced information about Meredith's character to you as the reader to and they're all it's it's all a little foreshadowing building up to what she did um when she was thrown back in time and I also foreshadowed Weir's behavior what Weir was capable of in canon Raddick Weir and Shepard are in the jumper that goes back in time and Weir's the only survival su- survivor and she's focused on saving the expedition. But what would she have done if John had survived with her? So so that was my question to myself when I was plotting that, when I put Meredith in the jumper, because when I was plotting it and I knew that old Weir was supposed to be on the city, I thought to myself, you know what? Canyon Shepherd might have left McKay behind in the control room to try to fix the problem. But this shepherd isn't going to leave McKay in the in the gate room. She, he, he's just not going to do it. It's going to be somebody else. It, it ended up being Raddick, who's, um, who stayed behind to try to fix the problem um, as John evacuated Meredith and Elizabeth. So I knew... I was wondering, you know, if Ashaj just killed Weir in the past or... But then when I was plotting it, and I was like, you know what, I can actually kind of build her up to the point where when I tell the reader that Weir didn't stay on the city, she did survive, and she went back to Earth with the ancients, that nobody would question it. They'd be like, yeah, yeah, she did, that whore. Because <laughs> it was, at that point, totally in character for this version of Elizabeth Weir, because I had done all this build-up and all this foreshadowing to let you know what kind of person she was and how self-involved she was and also how obsessed she was with the ancients. So, of course, she left with them. Because she had a choice. Now the question you have to ask yourself is if John and Meredith had both died, would Elizabeth Weir have stayed on the city? This um, this this version of Elizabeth? Although I think the answer is no. No, because she's so selfish. She's so fucking selfish. Um, I don't even think it would occur to her. Because she's living in the moment. She she's she's there. And if she messes with the timeline, then you know, 
no loop. Will there be a loop? There won't be a loop because they destroyed the time machine. So, she doesn't care. Yeah, she, she, she's definitely the important one. And so, that's what I was, you know, building up to that moment where Canon um, met my plot and I had to deal with um, the shield and the lack of power in the city and and how I would, would um, handle old Weir. And um, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to kill her. Um, and so, but then I had to make her, I had to make you believe that she would go back to Earth with the Ancients. And so all of her actions leading up to that episode are, are I'm building her character in such a way that when, she, when you find out that she abandoned McKay on that city to handle the problem, that it wasn't something outside of her, that it, that it didn't seem out of character for this version of Weir. At least I hope it didn't. That was my goal. And sometimes when you have a goal as a writer... You you think you've accomplished it, but you don't know for certain. And so, having someone you know point out the the, the foreshadowing in, the, in that particular um, episode and um, um, making the connections, the dots was was pretty gratifying. I appreciate that. Um, but uh, and then, you know, when you're building up your characters, especially in fan fiction, when there's an established set of traits, um. You want to, if you're, if you're going to make them act in a way um, that's contrary to canon, because in canon Elizabeth did stay with the city, that you you have to build up to that. I mean, you have to make it. You have to make a path that your reader can follow straight to those actions that are contrary to canon behavior. And one of the things I see in fandom, the biggest thing I see in fandom, criticism-wise, is. Um, Oh, that's so out of character. That's so out of character. That's so out of character. The first time I was accused of out of um, out of um, out of character behavior, um, it was on. It was in what in what might have been. Um, and the reader had a problem with McKay working only part time at the SGC. Um. No, the awakening came after I was already in the Stargate fandom, and I wrote back and asked her. I said, "You have a problem with the fact that McKay owns a bar and fucks around and lives off his money, and that's out of character. But him taking it up the ass isn't." She never did respond to that email. But there's new slash, and I'm gonna say it again. I'm going to say it again. If you bitches got a different version of Stargate Atlantis than me, and 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 Shepard actually fucks McKay on the series, you need to hook a bitch up. For real. <laughs> because that's not what I got. <laughs> there was no hot gay sex. <laughs> at all. In Stargate Atlantis. Um... I'm just let me know. So you know, honestly, when someone tells me that my slash fiction is out of character, I'm I'm gonna say, you know what, fuck you. Of course it is because they're fucking. They didn't fuck in the show. Kurt never been over for Spock. No matter how much I wish it had happened, it never happened. (sighs) 
And when you honestly change something so fundamental as someone's sexual orientation, how can they possibly ever be in character again? I just, whatever. But, but, <laughs> back to my original um, thought. Um, if um, you are going to make your character do something completely um opposite of what they did in canon you have to build up to it and and give um your reader a foundation on which to suspend their disbelief from because if you don't it's going to fall over and break and they're going to be mad I'm like what what Kira come on <laughs> that's not what Elizabeth did <sighs> McGee would have never left the radio off while Tony was in the field. That's not what happened. We already did our dead air conversation. <laughs> not that we couldn't spend, I don't know, a whole fucking week having that dead air conversation, because we probably could. Every bloody day, we could, yeah, we we definitely could have the dead air conversation every fucking day, um, for a week, two hours, three hours. <laughs> this week we'll be discussing dead air for a month. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. <laughs> you know, so and you know, honestly, I think that there are a couple of reasons why dead air sticks out um, as being so um, egregious is that it does seem um, well, it's <sighs> is it a step too far? Is it like look at the straw that broke the camel's back? One joke too far at Tony's expense. Is that why most of the fandom thinks that it wasn't a joke at all? Because it was just a step too far. But if you want to talk about foreshadowing events in NCIS, I think you can go back to all the way to episode one where Gibbs puts Tony in a body bag and Fornell throws him out of the car. That's all you need to know about how every person on NCIS is going to treat Tony Denozo for the rest of the fucking series right there they threw him out of a moving car in a body bag on a fucking highway who gets handcuffed to a serial killer Tony who ends up in a sewer with a serial killer Tony who almost gets murdered by a Mossad agent Tony who has to go to Israel and make excuses for defending his own life Tony. Who dies into a river? Tony. <laughs> Who gets the fucking plague? Tony. <laughs> it's like it, it, it never ends. And it begins with that body bag. Who gets thrown out of an airplane? Tony. 
so it becomes a thing, right? You know, um, but yeah, I think if any, if there was any about uh, of who gets to babysit the yappy dogs, of course it's Tony, the Italian furniture mover, which could be the cutest thing. I wish I had an Italian furniture mover. I need a couch. To, I need to take it out of my house. <laughs> we all want one. Just saying. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, but no, I do think that if, if you want to look at foreshadowing um, from a craft perspective in NCIS, um, it's definitely the the body bag. It sums up his his the, the treatment of his character throughout the entire series. <clears throat> Jilly wrote that Barb. I think it's an EAD. If it's not an EAD, it might be on the forum. Tony, it's like yeah, it's on the forum in the sneak peeks down at the bottom. Um, Julie wrote an episode, wrote a little thing about Tony um, being sent to Israel and him actually being really good friends with the president of the United States, and the president has a real fucking problem with um with that and it's on the rough trade forum you can find it in the workshop at the very bottom we have a section where people can post little snippets of their works in progress and um, that's where she has that posted and it's really fun Um, so um, when it comes to foreshadowing like I said if, if you're a pantser I, I highly recommend that you concentrate that concentrate on that in your second draft, because otherwise you're just going to stress yourself out. Um, and um, but if you're a plotter and once you have your events spread out, you can make determinations about where you want to drop information. Like you can say, okay, I'm going to have a small conversation in chapter two. I'm going to have so-and-so character find a letter in chapter six. And so you can build up the foreshadowing um, to your event um, in small places, a conversation here, um, a missed phone call there, a letter here. And so when you're looking at your project spread out in front of you, you can pick the moments that you want to remind your reader that something's coming. And if you're very careful with it, I got my hands waving in the air like you can see me. <laughs> if you're very careful with it and um, you weave those moments into your narrative, um, it can be so that it's very smooth, that they don't, that your reader doesn't stumble over it, you know, um, that when the event happens, there'll be a oh moment. Oh, okay. And it's but it's not like um, you're slapping the reader in the face repeatedly with with the information that Voldemort's on the, Quar- the back of Quarrel's head. Although one of the more interesting moments in the Philosopher's Stone is the snowballs that George and Fred keep hitting the professor with. <laughs> 
in the back of the head. <laughs> that's, that's really cute. <laughs> oh, it's really cute, and and it's an, it's an after the fact kind of thing when you when you realize that Fred and George um kept hitting Voldemort in the face <laughs> with snowballs, <laughs> and it's a really it's a really adorable um after the fact. But when it when it happens, you're, you it it just kind of passes you by. But when you realize in the end of the book after you finish reading, that Voldemort was on the back of Quarrel's head through most of the... Oh, really? <laughs> it's really interesting. Then you know that... Um, at that moment, you know a lot of things. You know that... Um, that Quarrel set the troll... Um, the, the troll loose. Um, you know that his faint was probably fake. Uh... You know all kinds of things after you find out that Voldemort's been hanging out on the back of the, that dude's head that you didn't know um, before. And then all these little details that she's woven, it, weaved, woven. Sorry, I'm... My, <laughs> I took... Um, I definitely took the, the wrong allergy medication, let's put it that way. Um, into the story, um, pop out at you one by one as you connect the dots and you make the connection between Voldemort and um, the actions of other characters in the book. Like, for instance, the fact that Snape was sitting next to Quirrell when Hermione set him on fire, and that's what really disrupted um, the curse on Harry's broom. Because Snape bumped into Quirrell because he was on fire, and it you know it 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 it, it, it disrupted the curse. And you find out that um, that Snape and Quirrell were arguing because Snape thought Quirrell was after the stone. But the implication there is that, that Snape did not know that Voldemort was actually um, possessing Quirrell. And also, the first book foreshadows the diary. Umbridge. The murder attempts. The snake. I'm going to tell you how. Because the first book tells you that what Hagrid said in the first book, in the first chapter, is utterly untrue. Hogwarts is not the safest place in Britain to be. And Dumbledore isn't the greatest wizard to ever live. Because if it was safe, Quirrell wouldn't have been there. And if Dumbledore was a great wizard... He would have known that his fucking professor was fucking possessed by the fucking Dark Lord. Come on! <laughs> How could he not know? Right? So we assume in fandom that he actually did know. He's going to let that dark asshole fuck about the school. Right? So if Dumbledore wasn't aware of one of his own teachers being possessed, then him not knowing about the giant fucking snake living under, this, under the school 
Okay. Didn't know about the dark object the first year was carrying around for a year? Okay. I mean, he didn't notice the possessed teacher. Why the fuck would he notice anything else? Right? Right? This is what we call a plot hole. And this particular kind of plot hole damages characterization. She never explains why Dumbledore didn't realize that Quirrell was um, possessed. She, she never explained how the diary hid from Dumbledore. And because these things were never explained to the reader, it becomes, well, if Dumbledore really is a very, very powerful wizard and Hogwarts is the safest place because he's there and he has the wards and then he has to know about the possessed teacher and the dark object diary and the Horcrux hanging out in the room of requirement and the big giant snake under the school. He has to know about all of that. Right? I'm telling you, he didn't ding-dong. He just ditched. He did not ring the bell. (laughs) There was no bell ringing. (laughs) It is ditch. After he has a little dramatic walk up to the the doorstep with his little lighter putter-outer, Anyways, honestly, honestly, if you think about it, it probably is completely and totally unintentional. Um, When Dumbledore and McGonagall drop that toddler off on the front porch with a note, he's been injured. They don't even ring the bell and they walk away. That tells you everything you need to know about the adults in Harry Potter. In November in Britain. (laughs) You can't forget that, right? And it tells you everything you need to know about the adults in Harry Potter. Number one, that they're reckless and they don't have any damn common sense. Um, two and three, they don't give a flying fuck about Harry Potter. Literally, a flying fuck. They do not give. <laughs> and it is established from the get go. <laughs> oh shit. Mm. Anyways foreshadowing um so you know 
you can be really, really obvious with it. And that doesn't, I think that I find foreshadowing um, the most entertaining as a reader when it's subtle and I have to look for it. I'm like, oh, yay, look what I found. Awesome. And sometimes the color, the curtains are just purple and they don't have any meaning whatsoever. I imagine he could walk and talk at 15 months old. All of my nieces and nephews could say yes, no, and fuck by the time they were 15 months old. <laughs> fuck be the favorite cuss word in our whole family. <laughs> my niece, um, her first word was no. Not always. It's not always my fault. Um, sometimes it is. But um, her first word was no. Um, and um, it was in response to... Um, it, my mom asked her to do something. Asked her, um, I think she asked her to come here. And my niece looked up at her and went, No. And she was like 15, 14, 13 months old. No. Plain as day. She hasn't said mama or daddy, but no came out of her mouth. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is pretty rude to tell um, Petunia that her sister died. The last of her family, from all appearances, is dead. Um, and here's her kid. Good luck, and you can't get rid of him. But, you know, so I do think that was probably unintentional foreshadowing. Um, not sure what that says about that whole situation. So we'll just leave that there. We'll just leave that right there next to the body bag that Tony's sleeping in. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'm not going to make it. <laughs> I'm going to have to um, end the podcast because... I honestly, I do think I took my nighttime um, science medication instead of my daytime science medication um, because I am, like, super sleepy, and I'm at that stage where I want to curl up with my blanket, <laughs> and I don't want to lose it because then I'll be out the rest of the night, and that's how insomnia works. So I'm going to let you guys go. Um, if you have any questions about foreshadowing in particular specifically, um, go over to the Ask Me Anything page and put that down, and um I'll address, I'll address it tomorrow night on that podcast, and um, we'll um, do some chatting and talking and stuff. Um, I'm going to go out and punch my dog. I'm kidding. I'm not actually going to punch my dog. But he is barking um, and being a little asshole, so I'm going to handle him before I go to sleep. Anyways, you guys have a great evening, and I will talk to you later.